This episode is brought to you in part by Wholehearted Love, a new book by Caleb and Stephanie Rouse. Overcome the barriers that hold you back in your relationships with God and with others and delight in feeling safe, seen, and loved with Wholehearted Love. For more information, go to Tyndale.com. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Worth Your Time podcast. I'm your host, Erica, and I'm bringing you a special bonus episode today. One of my newly favorite writers and pastors and speakers, Mark Sayers, is on the podcast. I feel so lucky that he was willing to offer me just a few minutes of his time all the way from Australia. I have become one of his biggest fans recently. I've read his book, Reappearing Church, as well as Disappearing Church, and he's the author of many other books. Basically, I think he's one of the most important voices right now on the state of the church in the in the modern era, um, sort of in this post somewhat post-Christian um, culture that we're living in in the West. Um, his analysis on what's happening um, both be- between right and left in, in the church is honestly not to be missed. I feel like I got so much wisdom out of this conversation, and then I've been listening to him on a ton of other podcasts and, and stuff recently, too. Um, but it was really special to get to ask him, you know, really specific questions related to the things that um, I care about. And some of his answers, man, I mean, they just, he just blew it out of the water. And I just, um, I'm just thanking God so much for his voice right now. And I really encourage you to uh, pick up his book, listen to this podcast, see if you can't learn something. Thanks so much. Mark, well, you are a pastor. You're an author living in Australia with your family. Um, although I know you've been, at least from what I've seen, very popular on the North American uh, circuit recently. Mm-hmm. Um, can you give me just a little background on your faith history, how you came to be a pastor and an author? Mm. Yeah, so um, I grew up in a Christian family, um, but I think my faith really sort of came alive to me probably as a late teen. Um, and um, sort of went through a mental health challenge and then God became very real and sort of, I guess, really rescued me in the midst of that. And um, I then went to study at college um, advertising, but in the midst of that, um, also did a mission trip to North America to work in a gang-affected area um, in both Los Angeles and San Francisco. And it was really there that God, I think, laid on my heart's pastoring, which was a surprise. And uh, so I actually worked with the Salvation Army for about 10 years. And um, and then have been a pastor at the church that I've been at since then. So, yeah, that's the, the shorthand version. And so how long have you been with the church that you're with now? Uh, so I think that was 2002. Okay, so quite or, a while. Or 2001, yeah, so a while now. All right, well, I know you've written a lot of books, but the two that I have read are your most recent ones, Reappearing Church and Disappearing Church, which I sort of just found I was doing a Google search and I was looking for just books that had been written about the church, which is very broad. Um, Mm. But I have recently really just, that's become a passion of mine is just to write about the modern American church and what's happening with Mm. it and where it's going and what we need to know and how do we get people back to church. And so when I found your book, I just, I ordered um, reappearing church right away, um, not Mm. really knowing much about you or much about the book. Um, but when I got it, I was just, I just devoured it. I absolutely loved it. I was underlining like every other page and immediately said, okay, I have to buy the other one, obviously. (laughs) And, Mm. um, I just, 
I, I just, I was just so intrigued by everything you said. Just your cultural commentary is just so spot on, just so packed full of so much, um, just valuable um, stuff, I guess, that God has given you to sort of tell the world. So my question for you is what led you to write those specific books? How did you know that that was, you know, what you were supposed to write? Yeah, I think a lot of my writing journey has really been, I guess, the reflections of just, you know, I think I'm born observer and trying to examine what's happening around me. And I think being in a very sort of post-Christian city and and sort of, I guess, post-Christian country, um, you know, ministry presents these continual challenges from things that you face on a daily basis in just ordinary people's lives to sort of, I guess, big cultural things. So I think all of the books are really just me you know, thinking that out and talking to God about it. And then out of that process, there's some things which hopefully I can pass on to others. Um, so it's just this continual, almost, you know, diary of what I'm learning, uh, trying to be a pastor uh, in this culture, in this moment. Yeah. And then that's sort of a reference to your podcast that you have, This Cultural Moment, mm. which I have listened to um, quite a few episodes of that. Really good. Um, now, I came across your books when I was kind of feeling a little bit negative. I had, you know, just been studying up on all of the data about people leaving church and the nuns and the spiritual, but not religious, the rise of all of these different things. And just feeling like what, what's happening. I feel like it's sort of slipping out of our grasp in a certain way, which I know that obviously we are not in control anyways. But when I read reappearing church, I just thought this is such good news. Like, this is actually a good thing because it means God's about to move and just the way you put it was so powerful. Um, how did you come to that conclusion where you felt like, or not that you felt like, but just that you looked at history, you heard from God and you thought actually renewal is on the horizon. Mm. Yeah. Well, I think I, I sort of, um, it's like you listen to say radio channels and you can go across the, the dial of different radio channels. And I think for a while there, um, like so many of us, I was listening to one channel, <laughs> a radio station. And, um, you know, that radio station, I guess, was the data. It was, I guess, some of the commentary that comes from both inside and outside the church, which is really based on a assumption that as the world progresses and becomes more modern, that inevitably what that will mean is that people will leave faith um, they'll become detached from the church, and that's just an inevitable, you know, inevitable outcome that we're heading towards. And I think I sort of just as I began to read history, and um, I think really reading a lot outside of the West, um, and you see how one of the real resurgences, which has caught, I guess, so many people who are trying to predict our future by surprise, is the return of religion. Um, you know, we've seen that across the world. Um, pick one place, Turkey. Um, you know, which is a country which, you know, at the beginning of the 20th century tried to push into a sort of secular state, you know, finds itself now, uh, you know, uh, pushing more into an Islamic political uh, moment, you know. And so there's these counter stories where religion was coming back around the world. So I thought that's interesting. But then as I began to read church history, um, I saw that there were really it was at the moments when people were writing the epitaph for the church that that's exactly the moment that God turned things around. And, um you know, there's a number of moments that captured my um, 
uh, you know, attention. But I remember just seeing a short video with Nikki Gumbel, who's the vicar at HTB Church, Holy Trinity Brompton in London, talking about how in the 18th century at one Easter service at St. Paul's, the massive cathedral in London, you know, something like six people turned up to Easter. And that's in the 18th century. Like, hang on, what? <laughs> and as you read, you realize that there's actually, it's more like a roller coaster rather than this inevitable graph of decline. And the church goes through these boom and bust markets of faith. And, you know, I think that's linked to people's dependency on God. So this turned all of my assumptions upside down. And I think it actually subverts the dominant assumption in the West, which is really written by, I think, people who find themselves in a little bubble and a subculture where they're only surrounded by irreligious people who think the same as them. And one of the things of the 21st century in our sort of digital landscape is that we silo with people who think like us. And so I just began to question the dominant narrative. And I think that, you know, really what church history tells us, what global history tells us and what biblical history tells us is that um, in the upside down kingdom, the moment you think you're down, actually God is about to lift you up. Yeah, I love that. And I have to say, um, it inspired me when I read your book to, I, I got an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal published, like basically based on a lot of what you said. And uh, so that was just really cool for me to be able to take, you know, my kind of perspective or my take on what you were saying and, and spin it out that way. Um, so thank you for that. I appreciate it. Oh, no, that's great. It's great to see it going far and wide into those spaces and helping people. Yeah. Um, you talk about a lot about how transition, tragedy, crisis, those are all opportunities for renewal and for people to be open to the gospel in ways that they weren't before. Obviously, right now we're going through COVID-19. This seems to be way more important. I mean, even than when we first realized this seems to be a way more important opportunity for the church than we could have ever imagined or created ourselves. Do you see the, I know the church is such a broad scope, but do you see the church taking it on as they should? And what do you predict are the long-term effects of what's going on right now? Um, yeah, uh, I think, I think, you know, part of my argument was that as the world become more globalized and more complex, we were going to have more shocks like this. Um, but even predicting that I didn't expect a shock like this. So part of my thinking about renewal was that as those shocks come, they're going to undermine our faith in, um, progress and, um, our institutions and the authorities we look to, um, sometimes apart from Christ. And I didn't expect one to come this significant and this quickly, um, but you've seen that. You've seen um, everything from, you know, it, 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 it's interesting because it's like COVID-19, what it seems to do is physically to us is jump on what they call comorbidities. If you have heart conditions, asthma, lung problems, it makes them worse. And in the same ways, it's socially and politically um, jumped on our systems and in a sense made them worse as well. So whatever a country's dysfunctions were, it's like it's yeah, amplified them. And so what we're seeing is, um, you know, people finding themselves in, in great moments of questioning, you know, in terms of um, um, socially, culturally, um, also just personally, their own morbidity and fragility. I heard one stat the other day that only 9% of people in the United Kingdom want to go back to what life was like before COVID-19, wow. which I found fascinating. Um, and obviously, they don't want the people dying and illness, it's more about, hang on, we've rediscovered maybe friendliness and community and things like this and a, a shared sense of solidarity. Um, so I see churches will respond in a couple of ways. I think there's the churches who just like humans will go into denial. <laughs> this is happening. Um, the second thing is we'll try and run the script from the last season. So we'll just try and keep going. 
Um, uh, a third group will try and, you know, beat this in our own strength and do the greatest, you know, response and try and beat, you know, coronavirus. But I think there's a fourth group who will, you know, see that the goal is still the same, to preach the gospel, to, you know, be heralds of the kingdom. And then in the midst of this change, there's opportunities. Um, I found it absolutely fascinating, A, the upsurge in interest in religion, um, in people and faith and people asking questions, um, people who have jumped onto live streams who you never thought would ever turn up to a, a church live stream, um, people in the street having conversations. Um, all of a sudden, people realize that they are fragile. So in a sense, the idols have been shaken. Um, I also see churches, like a common story is that churches, have, like we've tripled in size in, in people uh you know, viewing our services and, and interacting and pushing into things like prayer. Um, so I actually think that um, it's going to be the making or breaking of, of many churches at this time. Um, I think it's going to play out differently in countries. Um, I, it, it's going to be interesting here in Australia. I was talking to also my friend in Denmark. So we're probably those countries which are dealing with it really well. So in a sense, it could reinforce that, hey, we've got the better political systems. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so we just push more into that and, and we do this well, which is lovely to be living in a country like this, but, you know, so it could reinforce some of that stuff. But I think there's a general shaking in the world and there's a pushing in a hedging of our freedom. Um, and, you know, whether it's someone trying to homeschool and, and, and do their job via Zoom at the moment, it's just like, I don't have the resources to do this. I need something more. Or someone who's been laid off and is, you know, sitting in their house and used to run around like a headless chicken distracting themselves and now thinking about the bigger questions. Um, you know, I think there's a profound opportunity in the midst of this crisis for the church. Yeah, absolutely. Well, one group that I am focused on right now, um, reaching in, in some of my writing and potentially an upcoming book is um, Christians who, people who identify as Christians, but don't attend church. Um, yeah. And a lot of those people I've found, because I've done some surveys and interviews, have experienced church hurt and I guess I know I'm kind of pivoting from COVID-19, but what is your answer to folks who are struggling to return to church because of church hurt or because of a bad past experience? And how do we speak to them into that experience? Mm. I think one thing that I discovered was um, there's a tremendous complexity um, of experiences. So often you'll be in these discussions, and I've been many of them over the years, where people are talking about church hurt, but almost what you need to do then is um, drill down into what's the personal reality of that. So, for example, you could have a group of five people who have been burnt out by church or use that language. And as you get to know them, one could be that they had a terrible experience growing up Catholic and, and um, you know, something happened in that environment and, and you know, they just um, struggled. And, you know, in, in my state here in Australia, we've just had a royal commission into you know, historic abuse in the Catholic Church. And that's been a big deal for a lot of people here. Um, you know, and I've run across a number of those people. We've had people who've come to Red, um, you know, through that experience, our church. And, you know, there could be another person who was then at a, a large mega church and their thing wasn't, you know, in a sense, a systematic, um, you know, letting down of the most vulnerable. So something like abuse, it's more they got burnt out by the systems and programs. Another person might be burnt out by church because they went to a liturgical church, which is small and seemingly had no life for them as a teenager. And um, they just left it because it seemed absolutely irrelevant. Another person might have come from a a situation where there was power abuse. um, And, you know, they felt manipulated and used by leaders. Another person actually might be 
what if it's their flesh pushing back on some of the challenges that actually God was asking them to give up things and, and the church became a handy excuse. So I think, you know, the more I look at it, I think that there's actually a real complexity and almost um, when we just try and address one, one answer, in a sense, um, it can become crude. But I think we almost need to group people into different buckets, if you like, of experiences and help them then work through them because the solutions for those different groups are going to be different. Yeah, that's a really good point. Um, and then sort of connected to that, thinking about the nuns and the spiritual but not religious that you always see in all the data that's coming out. Um, you know, my research has shown, and I'm sure you know, that most of those people believe in God and are very open to faith. And they actually consider themselves to have a decent relationship with God, a lot of them. Um, and so I sort of see them as, to, to use a, for lack of a better term, low-hanging fruit <laughs> to get back into the church. Uh, do you have any thoughts about how we deliver an effective message or an invitation to the people that identify in those groups? Mm. Um, yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting too, because even again, I would add some nuance. My experience in being in North America and on planes and talking to ordinary people, um, you know, who hear my accent and then perhaps will share things with me they wouldn't. <laughs> I don't know what it's about. Um, is, you know, there is, I find a lot of people who perhaps grew up evangelical, um, perhaps even politically, some of the things or culturally that they've sort of moved away that understand that, in a sense, that story of people moving beyond church is then, you know, put into, the, I guess, the sort of polarization that happens in the United States. Um, so there's a particular way of how you would address that. In Australia, I find a lot of people who uh, are more like, you know, historically grew up Catholic. Uh, my city is the biggest Greek city in the world outside of Greece. So there's lots of people who grew up Orthodox. Um, and they've sort of got this faith, but they haven't sort of gone on with it. They actually often are quite conservative um, in some of their beliefs, um, you know, morally. And um, so I find both those two groups almost different. Um, so again, you know, what I find is that God is drawing people to him. And what you need to go to is there's blockers to faith, but then there's also things where God's doing something as well. You know, even, you know, someone might say, oh, I don't like what's going on with the church with this or whatever and so on. But then, oh, that's, you know, tell me about, do you pray? Um, have you ever had a supernatural experience where God's, something's happened and you can't explain that? I often find that that's the road back. Um, often the blockers are them trying to deny what's actually happening supernaturally for them and spiritually as, as the Holy Spirit draws people back. Um, you know, I found that there's people who for ages you talk about the blockers and then all of a sudden they just collapse in a moment because actually the bigger story was what God was doing in their life. So it's a, it's a subtle dance, which I think too almost has to be personal. Like I think I... I probably have become a little bit more cynical about like if we could have one broadband, you know, platform that we communicate to the culture because I think this is a very personal story. But the good news is that local churches, as they engage with these people, um, particularly around transitional moments, often, um, you know, it could be the death of a loved one, the loss of a job. Um, there was someone who did some research here in Melbourne that there's a huge amount of people who reconnect with their faith after they've just had a baby. Mm. Um people personally connecting with those people at that moment and walking with them through that, where it's almost an Emmaus Road experience where they're walking, they don't realize Jesus has been walking with them. And then there's that, you know, that 
moment when um, that all of a sudden, you know, God makes himself known to them again in a new way. Um, so I think part of this is the great mission of the church. Um, and we're actually resourced to do that because we have all of this personal um, resources of just ordinary people out there talking to their friends and loved ones about these things. Yeah. Um, so my, so this is, you know, sort of some of my personal work. Sometimes I feel like, like I wrote an essay, um, a few months ago about, uh, church and what it means to me and, you know, why I go and why I go, even though everyone, you know, is everyone's messed up in their own way. Um, Mm -hmm. and then, you know, I'm writing these op-eds and I'm, you know, focusing my, you know, professional stuff on the church, but sometimes I sort of feel like I'm shouting into the wind, um, not to, Mm -hmm. you know, I'm, 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 you know, the people that already are at church with me are hearing it and they're loving it. But is that message that I'm putting out there, does that ever resonate with, with the people that I actually am hoping to reach? Um, you know, is, I, I guess my question is, um, you know, when you're speaking and writing, are you speak, are you, are you speaking to Christians alone or are you hoping to reach, you know, some of the wider audience? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I mean, I think my primary audience for my books has been um, Christians. And even this cultural moment, again, was the same. But what I found so interesting is then people jumping on. So, for example, this cultural moment, there's been lots of unchurched people who listen to it, which is so bizarre. (laughs) And what I found is um, in the last little while, I've encountered people who some of I knew many years ago who – I would have never thought would darken the door of a church. And I've then discovered that actually what's happened with them as they're trying to question what on earth has happened in the last five years, culturally, politically, socially, um, that they've ended up in some places quite close to faith, which is so interesting. And so the same with my books. There's people who oh, I've got been contacted, like, oh, I'm not a believer, but I've read this and, and they want to engage. Now, part of my theory is that because there's a shame attached to that, um, that actually in some ways what sex was to the Victorian English era or something which you couldn't spoke about but still happened, religion is like that today, something you can't speak of in polite society. And what I find is that lots of people want to have a chat, but it's almost like an off-the-record chat. They don't want to talk about it in front of their friends. They're not even telling their spouses this is happening. Um, so I actually think that, you know, secularism, it push, pushes religion under the surface, um, but it's far more resilient than people realize. And so this is all happening. These conversations are happening, but they don't know where to take them. Like, um, and so I find that, you know, people almost have these back channels, <laughs> like, I just want to talk to you, you know, I read your book. What do you think about this? Um, but you almost think that it's not happening because you're not seeing it popping up on, Instagram or Twitter or in the media in the same way. But I think it's out there. I think it's definitely happening. Mm. Um, but again, too, that's where it's less, less a program. It's more a, a personal um, openness to hearing that and speaking. Um, I mean, one of, one of our guys and staff, Ryan, he's just got that absolute knack of initiating these conversations, you know, and we'll, we'll travel for ministry and we'll be in an Uber. And I'm just like, Matt, how did you get a conversation like that going? And the amount of times I'm like, oh, this is going to go dreadfully. And he just has that evangelistic ability <laughs> yes. to get, just listen to people. And what he does, I just said to him, okay, you know, all right, you work for me, but you, you know, like how, you've got great evangelism. What can I learn from you? He goes, I just listen. And, 
and it's just amazing that people just start it just starts coming out of them and you know just in the most strange ways sometimes so i think something's happening out there it's just listening and you know, be sensitive to where God's leading us to those people. Yeah, that you know, that's really reassuring because, you know, not that I base my value on, you know, how many shares something gets or, you know, likes on Facebook, but it's not like the people that I would want to be reaching with some of that message are going to be like, great job, you know, they're, yes. they're going to be, oh, that's interesting, but they're not going to say anything to me. Because uh, mm. they don't want to have pressure to go or whatever, so that that makes a lot of sense. Like there's a hidden curiosity, and so we have to make sure that we're um, following God's lead to to do you know whatever He's leading us to do or say, even if we're not really sure why or how it's necessarily working right this very second. So that's that's actually mm. really reassuring to me and what I've been working on. Um, now I'm someone that lived in Washington D.C. for ten years and worked in the political scene, so I was really drawn to a lot of your uh, commentary about ideology um, and mm. just how both left and right think they have the answers, either in ul like ultimate individual freedom or individual expression. Um, both both groups neither want to answer to any authority but themselves, basically. Um, and so I definitely agree with everything that you were saying about it, but I'm wondering if. Have you ever gotten pushback on some of those things from anyone in, in groups that you've spoken to or just readers um, on, on any of those things that you said? Yeah. I mean, what, there's two things. There's definitely pushback of people who are invested a lot in an ideology. And probably what I find with them too is it's interesting. It's almost like this. Oh, how would you describe it? It's like I find the most, the most potent people who have pushed back are people who perhaps grew up in a conservative environment and have gone to the left and mm -hmm. they then think, oh, you're just arguing the right argument, what, you know, when I'm actually not. And then people who, you know, grew up in left environments have now gone right and they're the ones who push back a lot. But the vast majority, that's been such a tiny majority, the vast majority of people who have engaged with, particularly with this cultural moment, have just gone, thank you. Oh, my goodness, thank you. And, you know, there was that study which we've talked about on the um, this cultural moment. You know, it's the exhausted majority. Mm -hmm. And even some of the connection with unchurched people, it's just like I think the average person is just looking at the political cycle. They're looking at Twitter just going, I'm just exhausted by this. Like, um, I mean, a amount of people have actually said to me, I've got messages, friends, others who just almost were relieved that COVID-19 happened in the sense that it changed the news cycle. Yeah. And it did you know, I mean, here in Australia, I know it's a bit different in the US, but almost just brought this, this. so we've got a left-wing state premier or equivalent of your governor, and we've got a centre-right prime minister. But interesting, they're, they're working in unison, and a amount of people are just like, oh, thank goodness. <laughs> they're just exhausted by it. So the vast amount of people, I think, are overwhelmed with, um, you know, political news has become 24-7, cable news, social media, it's just drenching them. And so to sort of offer... Hey, hey, look, you know what? There's actually faults on both sides. It just that message so resonates with so many people um, who are looking for, um, I think, Christians who are looking for a biblical way to understand that. I think that's where most people are at, to be honest. Yeah, I, you know, just reading your book, I just was also very relieved to read it and just feel like, okay, it's it's fair game here. It's he's calling out the right and the left, like both equally for different things, and. I love that because I think, yeah, I came from a very conservative background in, in that 
sort of political space and have moved much more to the middle and and less uh, Mm. attached to ideology at all as I, you know, put my faith much more, you know, front and center. Um, But I think it's so important that people are recognizing that. And, uh, you know, in the U.S., and I, I think you said it's like this in Australia, too, that a lot of Christians, majority of Christians do more identify with the right. Is that true in Australia as well? No. So, I mean, that's part of the other, my other subversive thing I've done in it is that, you know, I grew up in a environment in Australia where you'd have both left and right um, in the church. And, um, uh, you know, even, you know, the British Labor Party, which our Labor Party is descended from our left wing party, you know, was had a heavy Methodist influence. Um, And you have these weird quirks where, um, you know, there was a, d- a debate in our state parliament, um, you know, 10 years ago, but it was interesting. The left wing guy was arguing who had a Catholic. Also, there's a big Catholic influence in our left wing politics here. Um, so you had a Catholic left wing politician arguing against abortion a- against a right wing leader. Hmm. Now, some of that's changing, but you, you do have these interesting ways in which you know, traditionally in Australia. So, you know, my parents very much. Um, what we call here swing voters, you know. So I always grew up where some some of that times they vote right, sometimes they vote left. So I got that thing where, um, you know, you it's it's not as polarized here. Um, and uh, in some ways too, there are things which in America, so um, things like guns, um, which here you know people quite right would be against. Um, mm-hmm. So a lot of the categories that in America are defined into these two things. I mean, we, at the beginning of COVID-19, our right-wing prime minister, who is an evangelical Christian, you know, got up and said, you know, we're so lucky in this country that we've got universal health care and such a strong welfare net. And everyone's just like, yes, like that was a right, that's a right-wing mm-hmm. talking point here. Um, so there's in some ways that I realized in talking to an American space, um, it's helpful for me to bring an Australian perspective and there's still people who are polarized here and we've got our own problems, but um, in a sense, it sort of is a different reality. And when I talk to Americans about that, I think they find that liberating because like, ah, oh, so it doesn't have to be like that. Right. Uh, and yeah, so um, yeah, I think that's partially me speaking as an outsider who can bring something interesting into that American environment that, yeah, th- there's differences here. These things aren't set in stone. Uh, and in other even English speaking countries, which are very similar to America, Australia and America are pretty similar in some ways, different in others that, you know, there's other things going on politically, you know, with faith and, and so on. When you look at faith and politics, I mean, some people want to run away and not push them together at all. But I don't I don't think that's possible. But when you do look at faith and politics, how should I, this is a broad question, but but should Christians shy away from identifying ideologically? Um, how involved should or shouldn't they be in the political process? Um, you know, what are potential boundaries to be thinking about when you're, you know, mm-hmm. interacting with politics? I, th- I think that, you know, I definitely believe Christians should be engaged. Um, and, um, you know, I think we're called to go into many different, you know, areas of society to be salt and light. I think for me, part of it is that, you know, you know, I have my, you know, as, as someone who, you know, would identify as an evangelical, and I say that as an Australian evangelical, <laughs> which may translate slightly differently, um, but you know, there's, there's definite, what I mean by that, there's definite core things that I believe theologically. You know, I believe Jesus died and rose again. Um, you know, I believe in scripture. I believe in, you know, these things. 
outside of that, I have to be very humble and non-dogmatic. Um, and, you know, I would say for people to engage in politics, but to have a humble approach to your ideology. So there's an element that if, you know, someone's coming up in a left-wing political party or a right-wing political party, what's really weird is, you know, I would say stick and be orthodox on your faith and be slightly doubting and heretical of your political ideology. Mm. Um, and, and, you know, often it's the opposite way around. I've noticed with a lot of young people who enter, Christians who enter into politics, they actually become questioning and end up in heretical spaces with their faith whilst being dogmatic and almost fundamentals with their political beliefs. Um, so I think getting that balance is right. You know, I think there's things ethically around power. How do we as Christians use power? I think power is a thing. I'm not anti-power, but how do you use that in a kingdom sense? Yeah, and even little things too. You know, like ultimately, you know, I say this to people who are entering into any Christian space. Are you always ready and willing to press the eject button mm-hmm. for your faith? So if tomorrow you're willing to walk away and go and work in a hardware store <laughs> for your faith, if you had to, are you willing to do that? So it's almost like you can be in those spaces if you're not holding it so tightly. I think where the enemy gets in, where our own pride gets in, our flesh gets in, is when we hold something so tightly, we've always got to be willing to put it back on the altar to God. I think once you hold something that loosely, then God can use you. Oh, that's so good. I love that. Um, okay, uh, we're getting close to the end here, but I, I loved what you said about small groups of believers in your book, just the disciples obviously being the primary example there. Um, small groups are how you know God works here on earth many times. Um, and you also said this quote that I wrote down, which is personal renewal comes before corporate renewal, which I, I just love that concept. We got to get ourselves right, you know, before we can do something with a big group. Um, but for me and those who are like me who are not, you know, I've been I've been reading a lot and listening to a lot of like church leadership stuff lately. Like I'm mm. listening to, you know, the Barna podcast and I heard you on Carrie Newoff's podcast and I'm loving this information, but I am not personally a church leader. I'm not a ministry leader. I'm sort of like over here on the outskirts writing about stuff. Um and so I sort of feel in a way powerless sometimes to do anything or to make something happen, not that it's up to me, but for someone that is in this position, who's just simply a Christian who wants to see the church restored, what mm. are some tangible, what are the best things that we can be doing? Mm. Mm. It was really interesting when, when modern warfare changed, particularly with the invention of the jet fighter. Um, what happened was that people found themselves disorientated from the battlefield. Um, when you look at how strategy was done through history, generals could stand on a, on a hilltop with their telescope and binoculars and see the play of the battlefield. Once people in the Korean War found themselves in these jet fighters, which were spinning upside down, going so fast, hundreds of miles an hour, they lost sight of the battlefield. And I actually feel like something like that's happened today. And what I mean by the battlefield and, and recognition of the battlefield um, is that you can only operate effectively in an environment if you understand the lay of the land and we've gotten to this stage where i think things are spinning so quickly we've forgotten the lay of the land and the lay of the land is that the kingdom reality overlays and is breaking into our current reality Um, christians currently can go wrong badly by viewing the landscape through an earthly metric so we've got our earthly binoculars And the earthly binoculars of our world tell us that success, platform, position actually are what matters. When you recalibrate, reorientate, and actually look at things through a kingdom set of binoculars, um, you begin to see that how God 
sees power, position, influence. He sees it very differently. It's an upside-down kingdom. The woman who puts the couple of coins in the offering, um, Jesus reorientates the disciples to say, no, actually, in the kingdom of God, she's doing something immense. And my experience is that, you know, being someone who has met many people in church leadership, sometimes the most impressive people to me, the most kingdom-effective people, are not the, you know, very famous pastor you meet who's written lots of books, has lots of influence. It's actually the young woman who picked you up from the airport, the guy who's cleaning up in the church hall afterwards. And what I've realized is actually change comes through kingdom leverage points. And so um, there are plenty of people who have lots of positional leadership, but no spiritual authority. So uh, it's often people who are not in a position of church leadership who have spiritual authority. So what I would say to people is, I believe at this moment, God is raising up a whole humble generation of people who may not have that positional leadership, may not even have that relational leadership, but actually are building up spiritual authority, being close to God, asking what's on his heart, stepping into the mantle that God has for them. When you do that, you then have proper orientation of what the battlefield is, is at play, and you can have success for the kingdom. It may look completely different um, from earthly success, which is measured at the moment in likes, followers, uh, being known. But what's much more important is being known by him. Mm-hmm. And me as a church leader, I have to remind myself that pretty much, you know, all these things mean nothing sometimes, um, that I could write a post that, that gets no likes, but actually achieve something for the kingdom. I can have a conversation with someone who, you know, no one will ever know about that, but actually that advances the kingdom more than me speaking in front of 10,000 people. So, so I would say that reorientate it in that sense of whilst you may feel like you're on the edge, what if you're actually in the center of what God's doing? And conversely, maybe some leaders who have influence are actually on the edge because they're not listening to what God's doing. Yeah, that was an amazing answer to my question. Thank you. (laughs) Um, So my last question for you, Mark, is who are people that you look to? Who has been an influence on your life as a leader? And who are you looking to now? Who do you read, listen to? Um, Yeah, that's it. Yeah. Um, I mean, the personal renewal leads to corporate change um, is from my mentor, Terry Walling, who I've known since I was about 14. He was an American um, church leader who came to Australia and, and served in Australia for a long time. He went back to the States and, you know, we talk regularly. So he's been a huge influence on my life. Um, you know, I, I, you know, I had this thing a number of years ago where I realized that you know, at the moment when you, when you look at Instagram and when you look at these things, they're always pushing you to look at your peers. And I love my peers and I've got lots of great friends. Um, but I felt God say to look to the great, you know, giants of the church throughout history. You know, on my desk, I'm just looking. I've got two biographies of John Wesley here. Next to that, I've got um, Thomas Cowley's book, a, T- a Testament of Devotions, written in the 1940s. Um, you know, like I look to the great leaders of the church, the men and women who God used and try and allow them to be mentors to me, even if that's just through their writings. Um, uh, I look, I look at them um, to just how God used them, what they said and so on. Um, so I love looking at church history um, and, you know, what they could say. I've got, I'm looking across to my bookshelf, you know, there's William Wilberforce's biography by William Hague Um you know, those characters, I think at the moment I find looking into the world, it's really interesting. I guess in culture stuff, I'm, I'm really interested in a guy called Bruno Marques at the moment who's a former Portuguese politician who's writing about the world. He's just written a book um, about Eurasia, which I found is just one of the most 
um, books which speaks most into this moment. Um, I'm also like Para Kunner at the moment. He's writing a lot. He's out of Singapore, a lot about globalization. So I sort of have these two channels. I read old school church heroes of the faith, and then I try and read people who have a real touch on where we're going as a global culture. They're my sort of two reading channels at the moment. Okay, that's really good advice. I think I need to add some of those uh, heroic church leaders to my list as well. Uh, well, Mark, I just I thank you so much for taking the time to talk to someone you don't have a clue who they are. So <laughs> thank you very much for your time for this interview. And I'm looking forward to putting it out. Oh, many blessings um, with all that you're doing. And um, yeah, my real hope is that those who, who need to hear this message as you go into these spaces and even, you know, these secular newspapers and so on, there actually is people listening. So I just would offer a word of encouragement that even though they might not send a message back, when you go into those spaces, uh, God's definitely using that to draw people to him. Yes. And I will look forward to any of your um, upcoming work. Thank you so much. This episode was brought to you in part by the Lord of Spirits podcast. Many Christians yearn to break free of the influence of secular materialism and to understand the union of the seen and unseen worlds as made by God. What is the spiritual world like? Tune in wherever you get your podcasts.